I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Good day, good people. My name is Brad King, and you are watching and listening to the Downtown Riders Jam video podcast, which is part of the Solid Listen Podcast Network. We are coming to you from deep inside the jam bunker today. It is a lovely fall day. Very excited. Um, if you've listened to the program at all the last couple times, you know we got a our next border is gonna show up. Pepper, little 20-pound cute ass dog. She's gonna be with us for about two weeks, and we're very excited to have her since Max has passed. It has been very lonely, so it's nice to have dogs coming back into the bunker. Today on the show, a fantastic discussion, a fantastic person, a fantastic writer, Teresa K. Miller. And her book, Borderline Fortune, is out now. It's a memoir and poetry. Now, you know I don't do a whole lot of research before I talk to people, but I had actually gone out and just sort of accidentally, I was like reading her bio, and then started clicking around on some links and ended up reading a bunch of stuff about her, things that she had written, not stuff about her, things that she had written. And is really just one of these fascinating people that have... Um, you know, like everybody else has gone through a bunch of stuff and then has shared it around identity and um, sexuality and things of that nature. And I, like, I always appreciate writers that are able to do that. We also had a long discussion about therapy because as I always reference on the show, Allison Wood said, writing is writing, therapy is therapy, right? And so we had this long discussion about mental health and finding your space and uh, sort of telling stories and doing that in a healthy way. And and how do we sort of move through the world? And do we try to affect big change or little change? And, and how does that work? And how does that fit into your writing? It was just, I mean, like, 
literally we hit record and we're like, well, let's go into the deepest depths of all of our stuff. And I fucking love that. Uh, and I think that you will too, because she is smart and charming and funny. And I am excited to read her book, particularly after the discussion that we had that was around some of the topics that are covered in the book. So this is their second full-length poetry, Borderline Fortune. Uh, it won the 2020 National Poetry Series by former uh, California Poet Laureate Carol Musk Dukes. And we talk a lot about that because this was a defining moment in her writing. Uh, she uh, graduated uh, from Barnard College in the Mills College MFA program. She's the author of uh, SPED and Forever No Low and the co-founder of Food First, Selected Writings, uh, or not co-founder, co-editor of Food First, Selected Writings from 40 Years of Movement Building. Um, originally from Seattle, she is up near Portland, and she runs a mini orchard up there. So all of those things, poetry, writing, um, food, climate, social justice, like you're about to hear all about that. Before we get to all of that fascinating stuff, a little bit of business, these video podcasts come out every Monday and Friday. The Jam Proper comes out every Wednesday. I want you to think of a book lover or two that you have in your life. Just take a moment. What I want you to do is I want you to send them this podcast. You're sitting in front of a computer or your phone, most likely. Shoot them a text. Tell them about what we do here. That's the surest way for us to spread the word. The other thing you can do is leave us a review. If you're on an iPhone right now, head over to Apple Podcasts. You can leave us a written review or a star review. And if you're not, head over to our Facebook page at The Writer's Jam, and you can leave us a review there. All of those things help us get found. And it's super important that you do that for us and for any podcast that you listen to, but really mostly for us. Over at thewritersjam.com, our site, we got the video podcast series. We have book reviews if you're looking for things to read. We have the bookshop link so you can buy books right there. We got the monthly newsletter where all of this stuff is wrapped up and sent to you. And click on the Sound Listen Patreon button. For just a couple bucks a month, you get commercial-free episodes and all kinds of bonus content. And since you're listening to this right now, I will just say we have a special bad art friend, Patreon-only show coming up. So for just a couple dollars, you can have access to that. I would get signed up for that now. Okay, well, I appreciate you guys coming here spend a little time in the bunker just with me today soon with me and pepper for a few weeks hope that you're doing well get your ass signed up for the booster and if you haven't got the original shots go get the shots take care of each other winter's coming get the flu shot too just get rid of all of this shit if we could so that we can all go back to regular life but for now i hope you will sit back and enjoy the next 30 minutes or so of my conversation with Teresa k miller yeah, I'm just south of Portland, yes. so um, we're in the unincorporated Clackamas County. So Portland is three counties, and we're sort of just outside the city limits in the southernmost county, which was on purpose. Um, but yeah, it's a it's an interesting little area we live in, and it's been pummeled by climate change, especially in the past year. Oh, we really? had the wildfire oh. evac zone and yeah. then, uh, historic ice storm. So we didn't have power for six days. Some of our neighbors didn't have it for 12. And then we had the heat dome. So it got up to 116 degrees, which is not a thing in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, so, no shit. Yeah, yeah. We've had ringside seats to that, which is, you know, disturbing. But yeah, that's crazy. Because Portland was always one of my favorite places. And uh, yeah. were you guys part of that like red sky fire stuff? 
Um, it looked a little different up here. Up here, we were just basically in the middle of a smoke cloud. So I think <laughs> it was actually, you know, in San Francisco, I mean, I'm not saying that the AQI was great there, but it was a little higher up. And so there yeah. was still some visibility. We were just literally in a big gray cotton ball. So the AQI, the scale technically goes to 500 and, and some of the local monitoring were saying 651, which is like not even a normed <laughs> number, you know, that doesn't even mean anything anymore. It just means like, get out, except yeah. there's COVID. So where do you go? Because yeah. at that time that was, you know, pre-vaccines. And so <laughs> it's just like, I guess we sit in our little fish tank with our, you know, windows plastered off and hope the rain comes That's... Came, like in a week. So. Thinking about the Pacific Northwest, like if people haven't never been there, like, I mean, that's like the outdoor bastion of the country, right? That's where you go for the mountains. You sort of got everything and you're close up there to Canada, you know, Whistler, you can get up into that area. The idea of that being engulfed in that crazy stuff is unfathomable. I mean, it's not because we've known this is coming, but like, it's yeah. also like, how is this not freaking the fuck out of everybody? Yeah, it's, it was really, really hard. And I mean, it was so I'm speaking of the trauma theme. It's like, it was so traumatic that actually the county made Facebook posts, there was like a Facebook campaign um, on the year anniversary of the wildfires where they had, you know, little um, infographics or whatever saying like, it's normal to feel trauma on an anniversary like this. And like, here are numbers you can call and I get it because we went um, and stayed sort of like glamping with some friends in southern Washington. And my friends started a campfire and then people in a site near us had a campfire and their campfire kind of blew onto us. And I literally had my shirt pulled up over my mouth and was like having a panic attack until I realized like, oh, it's just a campfire. But my body remembered like, yeah. this is really dangerous. This is not good. You know? Yeah, so. this is I'm sure you've read the body keeps score. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like yep. it's my therapist made me read that. And like, and you know, it's one of those like there's some science behind it. But it's one of those things as a science and technology writer. Initially, I was like, I don't know if I need to, you know, I don't know. I don't know. And then I started yeah. reading it and I'm like, OK, I don't so I get the science. But I also know what you just said is that there's some shit happens that clearly triggers like actual trigger, not like trigger, yeah. like an actual trigger that makes that all of a sudden it's like, oh, the dragon is here and I got to yeah. do something about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, and like I think switch flips. Yeah. yeah. And the last two years, particularly, I mean, you obviously write about trauma is a you don't write about trauma but trauma is a theme of the mm -hmm. stuff that you're working on mm -hmm. the last two years must have been i mean i know what they've been like for me trying to write while also experiencing that and also digging through that must have been really difficult yeah i mean i'm fortunate that i finished this book borderline fortune the weekend that we decided we weren't going to go out of the house anymore because of covid <laughs> Um, so we saw the writing on the wall and yeah. we're like, I mean, not that, you know, we were super prescient. It was coming together right. clearly, but, um, it was on March 14th. We were like, okay, this isn't cool. We're not going to go yeah. out of the house anymore. And on March 15th, I turned in the book and then, you know, I found out over the summer that it got picked up and thank goodness for that timing because the intervening, you know, three months before I found out I was a finalist for the national poetry series were just basically me doing a merry-go-round of news websites and like Twitter and just like, has anything changed? Has anything changed? Are we yeah. safe? Has anything changed? And it's this loop that can't possibly be completed because nobody knew, right? We were just right. like in the great unknown. So yeah, I don't know. How did you, how did you deal with that? But it's I mean, the loop, I've talked about the loop on this show so many times, like that's a hallmark of trauma. 
Yep. Right. You get you get in that cycle. I mean, I was a news person and I was a tech news person and a science news person. So I spent the first several like I knew in December, like I had friends. I got a lot of friends in Europe and they were like, oh, this is not it seems like a thing. Mm-hmm. So then I just started obsessing. And then we got this fucking guy in office who, you know, is like swallow the sunlight and shit like that. And I was like, yeah. oh, my God, like we're in end times. Yeah. And I finally had to stop and just say I can only watch the news in the morning for like a half hour just to see what's going on. I turned off all my notifications because I'm like, there's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do. Right. And mm-hmm. so immersing myself in that was going to yeah. stick me in a loop when you can't leave your apartment. I had an apartment at the time. Like <clears throat> you just can't like there was no way to create. There was no way to write. There was no way to process it for me because. Like this is unprecedented. Yeah. Yeah. There's that word, right? It's applied so many times the last couple of years, but it's very true. Yeah. Because so much of, at least for me, like in trauma therapy and like when I try to write and when all that stuff happens, being able to, you know, I do EMDR, being able to attach it to previous things, being able to place that feeling is paramount to being able to reduce the stress. Mm Mm-hmm. What, do what do? the fuck it's, do you do when you got a president that's like swallow sun? Yeah. And you're like, well, 700,000 people died and half the country is like, eh. yeah, like, I don't yes. know. I don't know how to process that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's been really amazing. I think, um, you know, I've very consciously refused to fall into cynicism, but it's super, super tempting. Right. And just <laughs> trying to figure out how do you stay part of the collective and keep doing things that are good mm-hmm. for the collective but also I have come out of this with more of a sense of like, at the end of the day, I'm the only one who's gonna look out for me, like really, really look out for me. And that doesn't mean that I'm gonna go to Costco and buy, you know, 10 pallets of toilet paper so nobody else has any, like right. that's that's not taking matters into my own hands. But I think as, you know, my partner and I have made decisions around like what's safe and what should we do next? And, you know, here's what the CDC says. Here's, you know, what yeah. people are doing around us. Like they're, at the end of the day, I it kind of dispelled this illusion of like, oh, there's some other greater social safety net that might step in if the chips are really down. And it's like, mm, maybe, yeah. maybe not. <laughs> I mean, it's, <laughs> you know? I mean, we were talking about what we owe to each other, the, the, the Scanlon book, just because of the, what I was reading about your book. And you know, like, I don't know how old you, I'm Jen, I'm like 49, right? I'm about to be 50. Yeah. So I'm like square in Gen X. And so to me, it's always been about the neighborhood. You know, it's always like, I can't control anything other than like my neighborhood and make sure that I can help my neighbors when they need it. And so that has been what I have focused on is like making sure I have open spaces, making sure people know that like they're welcome. If they need something like I will help out like that's just it's the only thing I can do. It's the only thing I can do, because if I start thinking beyond that, then you start getting into like existential horror of like (laughs) humanity and civilization as a construct. Right? Yeah, Yeah, I, I hear that for sure. Yeah, I'm like. I'm an elder millennial, right? So I, you know, kind of had both yeah. both worlds. Um, my partner's Gen X, um, but yeah, I I feel that. I think I I grew up a little bit more with the illusion of, or I don't know. I'm not sure if I'm ready to say it's totally an illusion, but of systems change. And I've worked for advocacy organizations, yeah. done nonfiction writing around, you know, pulling big political levers and really changing systems and not just sort of tinkering around the edges. But I have found I need to do both. Yeah. So it's like, I need to keep pushing because there's stuff that needs to change and I don't 
want to say that I just sat back and, and let it not change. But because I don't have direct control over that, I also need to be like working in my organic orchard and, you know, seeing if my neighbors have, you know, cold food storage when we have no power for a week. Yeah. Kind of stuff. Well, so, I guess yeah, that's what I, I mean that. is that, you know, you begin to realize like, you know, I don't believe I've, I've used this metaphor many times. Like I'm a mountain guy. There's like mountain people. There's ocean people like the Like the mountains <laughs> are where my that's where my peace comes from, like hiking into the mountains yeah. and camping. Is, I just and I tell people like I don't believe in God, but like you can't be in the mountains and be around all of that stuff and not get a sense of the sort of the grandness of the of us, of humans and the tininess of you. And you realize if I just push the rock a little bit, as long as I'm pushing the rock forward, well, if 8 billion of us push it forward a little bit, it gets better, right? Yeah. And that's sort of when I talk about the neighborhood, that's sort of what I think. Like, yeah, yeah, we advocate for things like, you know, I advocate for a lot of different stuff and I do different things than you. But at the end of the day, I'm like, ah, if I can help the four people here do something. Yeah it's that old commercial, right? Like, and they do four people and they do four people. And that's, that's where the change comes from. And I know I won't see it. Mm -hmm. Right. Like that's sort of the, and that's a hard, like, that's a, I don't know. That's the, that's a hard thing to come to grips with because I, I'm assuming you're like me when you were young, you were like, fuck it, burn everything down. We're going to change the world. <laughs> and you're like, Oh, the world punches back. <laughs> <laughs> the world the world does punch back. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I, I do think I had a sense of like, well, if people just had the information, like people just don't have the information. And I think what the, you know, so called post truth era has shown us is like, no, people fully have the information and they want to thwart, you know, yeah. that kind of progress. And so it's like, oh, okay. So and one thing that's been nice about living in Clackamas County and, you know, leaving the Bay Area, I mean, it's been hard because the politics are very different here, but it's also been real because, right. <laughs> um, you know, it's a purple county. And so I often joke that it's where the libertarians meet the bohemians, um, you know, so there are people <laughs> yeah. like us who come here because we're artists and it's more affordable and, yeah. you know, have a big organic garden and whatever. And there are people who come here because you can have a bunker and store a lot of guns. Yeah. You know, and and we're we all got to be neighbors and coexist. And sometimes it goes better than others. And I think, you know, some of my friends in Oakland or whatever would be like, oh, gosh, why would you ever subject yourself to that? But I'm also like, well, we're all sharing this world regardless. So, yeah. you know, I would again, the idealism, but I would love to find a way like not to enable any of the really heinous stuff. But sure, there are there are points of overlap where it's like you know, we're just, we're trying to live our lives and, and there are people out there where they believe differently than I do, but they're also not trying to, you know, actively undermine my well-being. And so, you know, maybe we can have some sort of coalition, at least as neighbors, you know, we've found. Yeah. I mean, Bill Hooks has made a career out of writing about this kind of stuff, you know, like, I mean, her, she's from a, a few counties over from where my family grew up. So like I grew up reading, like, like that's the whole, like her whole point, right? Like I was talking about this on the show the other day, like when her, she wrote a book called Belonging which is about growing up. I don't know if you read about growing up in this small Kentucky town. I mean, she teaches in, in Kentucky, right? Mm -hmm. And talked about sort of the, the racism and sexism of small town, right? Where like there is, it's personal. You all know each other and like, you may not like each other, but it's a small town and you're out there. And so you sort of, you learn to live together. And this isn't, mm -hmm. she's not like, this is perfect. And then she said she went to Stanford and then the racism and sexism became impersonal. And that felt more dangerous because that was just, a general sense of things and there was and so 
she doesn't say one is better than the other, but she's like, there are these different strands of this stuff, no matter where you are. Yeah. And, you know, like I'm from, I am from a solid red place and I am very clearly not a solid red person, but I, I feel what you're saying very much, which is, I mean, you know, they're here. Yeah. Yeah. We, you gotta, you gotta <laughs> figure out some way to get along because I mean, the alternative is just really toxic inhumane dangerous ideology where it's like one side has to conquer the other yeah i mean we just saw four years of it yeah yeah and i think people think like oh well if the reverse happened if like blue conquered red then that's good and it's like no i mean you would have more medicare for all and do better with the climate and all that kind of thing but the dehumanization if you really think you just want to conquer half the country because yeah there are fringes on the edge who are trying to overthrow the capital and whatever. And it's like, that's not cool. And yeah. we need to- That's not who we're talking about. Yeah, the judicial <laughs> system needs to take care of that. Like, I'm not defending that in any way, but just, you know, there are all these shades in between, like I said, of people who aren't being violent toward each other and they disagree. And it's like, unless you're proposing that just half the country needs to disappear, we're going to have to figure out how to get along. Yeah. And, so. you know, there's something, I've had a lot of scientists on the show who talk about like the the, the science of why people disbelieve science. And it's not, you know, I worked at Technology Review at MIT and like I was writing a lot about lefties denying things like, you know, and we may disagree on this, but the science of like the safety of nuclear uh, uh, power and Mm -hmm. GMOs, right? Like not the intellectual property, not the stealing of stuff from farms, but like, and it's like everybody picks and chooses the science that they don't like. And there's reasons for that, right? It's based on identity. It's based on, you know, sort of the structure, the social structure that you're in all of these kinds of things. And the thing that they told me, I've had three different scientists tell me what they found was the people that are most likely to convince folks that what their beliefs are wrong. Meaning if I'm like, Hey, COVID's not a thing is your family physician. Mm. People have people that have long-term relationships with their doctors will listen to them over all of the other stuff. And I was like, well, if ever there was a case for Medicaid for all outside of just the basic humanity of like, nobody should worry that they're going to die. If we know the people that are most likely (laughs) to help you make good decisions in life as a doctor, let's make that shit happen. Yeah. 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 For real. Yeah. We're, we're reaping a lot of what some people knew we were sowing and some people just didn't want to think about. So yeah, it's been a really interesting ride. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so, uh, borderline fortune is, is out now and like mm-hmm. it is, um, well, you tell me, I was going to tell you what I thought it was about, but you, t- what's it about? <laughs> like, what's the through line? What's the thing that ties all of these together? Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's big give week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it.
Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Yeah, so what I've been saying is that uh, the kind of premise of the book, it's not a political tract, even though I've done, you know, a fair amount of political writing. Um, It's very much its own thing. Uh, But I would say kind of the through line is that in order to heal the earth, we need to heal ourselves. And in order to heal ourselves, we need to heal the earth. So it's very uh, concerned with the illusion of separation, both (laughs) within parts of our mind that are kind of fighting with each other, um, within interpersonal relationships, families and societies, even neighborhoods, you know, like we've just been talking about. And then ecologically, the illusion that we're not part of the ecosystem, that we're somehow separate from it and we can mold it to our control. And I think there are a lot of people who would say, oh, no, I know that we're part of the ecosystem. I know that humans are animals, but that's not how they live their lives. You know, we have a system that's set up where you can sort of know that intellectually and then go ahead and get your big cargo load of, you know, free, cheap plastic crap that's going to go choke an albatross or whatever. And and it's fine. You can think about it or not think about it until like this past year in Clackamas County, climate change is not just at your doorstep, but in your house as um, the uh host of um a rude awakening at kpfa put it when i was talking to her the other day she said you know it's it's in our house we used to talk about it approaching our door but it's in our house so yeah yeah and it's you know it's um we're at this weird inflection point it's a good weird inflection point where the last i don't and you always have to couch this like nothing good comes out of COVID. nothing good comes out of a global pandemic there's zero things about this that are good a thing that has happened because of this i think is everybody's been isolated and there's been a lot of self-reflection on personal damage and trauma and the Mm -hmm. ways in which that impacts not the world but i think people are thinking about how it impacts them which i think is the first step in the sort of circle that you're talking about which is acknowledging that you probably went through some trauma and that trauma probably makes you make decisions you don't know about yes absolutely yeah i think there's a tremendous amount of denial and dissociation um, that people aren't aware of because we talk about denial kind of as a culture as being more like gaslighting right like people are people know something to be true and they say that's not true but actual psychological denial it's a very instantaneous coping mechanism you know when you're in the face of the unspeakable and the unbearable your brain kind of shuts down and lets your animal body survive and that's very adaptive in the short term and it's extremely toxic in the long term and it makes it particularly hard with something like a slow moving ecological crisis to even realize that you're having this series of little denials, um, you know, and and figure out what to do. So, yeah, I think you're right. I do think that the personal is a first step and it's not enough. You know, we can't all just sit around and, and meditate and then the, the carbon will drop in the atmosphere and we'll all be fine. But um, being able to even have a relationship with our own understanding of the world and be really clear about what's happening and what we're doing. And that's missing. Yeah. And I think that general, I mean, you see it now. I mean, it's not that you make athletes the centerpiece of stuff, but you see a lot of like younger athletes that are like, yeah, I need to step away from this. Like I need to, I mean, there's a, there's a couple of football players that did it. Like you're seeing it mm-hmm. in places where you would not traditionally see 
people say, I need to not be here for a minute, right? Like that's- Yeah, yeah, um, Simone and, Biles and yeah. Yeah, and there's, I can't remember the guy's name, but there were a couple linemen, big, you know, 350 pound dudes to play in the NFL that were like, I need, I'm having some mental stuff. And the team was like, yeah, go do that. And I thought, mm. you know, it's just one of those tiny fulcrums because there's a bunch of other bullshit happening. But like, yeah. like when I, when I, when I see, like I've talked to a lot of writers that have done, not what you've done, but like that are in that realm of like, we really have to mind this stuff to understand, you know, how this stuff impacts us, how it impacts the decisions we make, how those decisions impact other people, um, you know, and it's, it's empathy, but it's like empathy plus, right? Like it's not just embodying something else. It's, and right, like yeah. that sort of feels like where the neighborhood of genre that you're in. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's it's that um, seeing ourselves as part of a web instead of just this little, you know, sort of submarine going through this scape yeah. and we can just do whatever we want and just, you know, be passive consumers of what's happening with others. But like, oh, no, really, when you're hurt, I'm hurt, too. Yeah. So how, when you sit, you know, I rarely ask literary questions because you're a writer, like writing sucks. There's the process is terrible. <laughs> like there's nothing fucking good about it. There's nothing other people can glean from our procrastination <laughs> on doing a thing. But I am interested in, because I've talked, you know, I've interviewed lots of folks who have written um, personal things, things that like, mm -hmm. that are, that are directly from their person. Not like, oh, who's that person in your book? Like that are literally yeah. like their story or that come from this. How much, um, how much work in therapy did you do to sort of under like, because for me, I wrote it first and then I ended up in therapy. And then I know other people that were like, no, I needed to process it first. And then I came out on the other end and was able to mine it. Or was it? Yes. Yeah. I, <laughs> so it's an interesting question. I mean, there were, you know, a series of smaller traumas that happened to me growing up just because of um, stuff that was going on in my family. And then kind of the big trauma was when I was 23, my dad was killed. Um, yeah. A teenager was street racing in Seattle and my dad was out for a bike ride. And this kid decided it was really important to get in front of a semi truck. And so he intentionally drove up on the bike path and hit my dad and killed him. And that's when I was in my MFA program. So that was kind of the big thing. And that's where like, you know, my experience of EMDR and that kind of thing came from. Is because... that when you started that? Yeah, because that's kind of when it's like, you know, you gotta, that's like a pretty big flag. That's not yeah. just like, I don't feel good. That's, you know, yeah. my whole sense of safety and how the universe works and everything was just gone. So that was part of it. I would say a really big piece that led up to this particular book though, um, interestingly enough, I think was through um, a holistic uh, voice training. So I work with a voice teacher who talks about authentic voice and um, it's very much about not just physical posture and physical technique, but also what she calls metaphorical posture and you know how we are in the world and whether we feel comfortable standing up and speaking um, because it's very dangerous, right? I mean, even what we're doing right now, yeah. <laughs> like if you would have asked me 10 years ago, like. Do you want to go speak to a stranger extemporaneously on video and then he'll just like put it out there however he wants I, that's like absolute worst nightmare yeah. like give me a root canal without anesthetics because <laughs> speaking extemporaneously and then having it recorded like absolutely not do not want that under no circumstances um but this process of working with her has been really amazing um i went into it partly because i just 
you know, doing public speaking and whatever, doing readings, I felt like, oh, I'm always, I always have all this vocal fry and I don't know what that's about. And then also <laughs> I had been a singer when I was younger and, um, but I always thought I was an alto and I had this very small range. And after like the first time I met with her, she said, no, you're a lyric soprano. And I'm like, ha ha ha, that's cute. You know, like I thought my high note was an A above middle C. And she's like, no, 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 you have another octave and a half, like watch. And I was like, okay, whatever. Now sure you're enough. there. Yeah. Sure enough. So, I mean, that was a huge part of it to be able to be in your thirties and, and think, you know, I mean, how personal is your voice? Yeah. Right. And think, you know, what your voice is and have somebody be like, no, you, you're more than that. You're, you're trapping yourself and you don't have to. And so honestly, that process was huge to this particular book, even though the book isn't about learning how to sing, Yeah. but it certainly is about learning how to stand up and be like, I can speak too. I have yeah. a, I have a story too. It's 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 like you listened to this. I know you haven't, but it's like you listened to the show. Literally yesterday's introduction, I had I had Jan uh, Beatty on, and we had this really. I mean, she wrote a book called American Bastard about her adoption, and we had this really hour long deep conversation about addiction and recovery and trauma. And I said in the introduction, like people don't understand how fucking scary that is to do. I've been doing this for twenty one years, and like it's still like there are days that I'm like, eh, there's some shit I'm not going to say on the radio or on the show. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you sort of start to get out of that when you begin to discover, like, this is my story. Mm -hmm. But yeah. it's a fucking journey. It's a, it is. And it's a, yeah. it's, it, and, um, I, so that's fascinating that it takes you because I was 40 when my life fell apart. And I've told people it felt like all the shit that I'd been pushing down, like, finally got here and it was like nowhere else to go. And one day everything just broke in me. And then you make a choice. Like, do you put a gun in your mouth or do you go to therapy and fucking deal with it? Like, yeah, there's there's not there's not other choices. Right. And so I got dragged into it, thankfully dragged into it. Um, and that so I get that right. That like mm -hmm. finding and I think learning to sing is. Because it's physical, right? There's a physical nature to the release of your voice. Yes. of your not your singing voice but your voice mm -hmm. right yeah. in all its in all its elements for sure and for me i mean the thing that we've worked on so much is like i get nervous i get scared i'm afraid somebody's gonna get mad at me <clears throat> my whole throat clenches up and my voice gets really high and it gets really fried and you know and i and i hear it happen i mean now i know yeah. the fact that i told her i'm like i'll get in like a meeting with a client who's you know being shitty about whatever or sexist or you know and i feel like oh but how do i navigate this and yeah. you know and suddenly i'm like laughing and doing all this you know and, and she said yeah no that's normal that's you know your animal body is responding to yeah. threat survival and, instinct yeah yeah totally and it's possible to become conscious of that enough that you you're not going to not be nervous you're not going to not be scared it's scary to assert yourself and it's also possible to do it anyway yeah <laughs> so yeah. i you know i have to do the like i have a five second breathing thing it's like just stop everything and just breathe like feel your body and like it's amazing how much that brings down i call him the dragon right like the dragon is like ready to fucking burn everything down and i'm mm -hmm. like that's this is just this is this is not you that's lizard man, right? Yes. Yeah, um, literally. And it's it's yeah, it's crazy, right? Like it's crazy when you start figuring out that that isn't how you are. That is how you were made, <laughs> right? That is how you were shaped over time, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um. And so, how freeing must it have been to write this? I would start with terrifying, I think ultimately freeing, but yeah, definitely terrifying. And um, 
it's funny because my first book sped i had submitted different places and like it was a finalist for the national poetry series and it was a finalist other places and finally it landed with this little press in san francisco that does amazing book design amazing editing called sidebrow and but it was a process right so it was like multiple years and then i had a manuscript after that and i had grand designs like oh it's going to get published in two years and i have this whole plan for myself and <laughs> and it's in a drawer right now not because it's bad but just it's time hasn't come yet um so then i worked on this one and i wrote it in less than a year and like wow. i said i submitted it on march 15th i had just finished it that weekend and uh the first place i submitted it was the national poetry series and then three months later, I was literally in tears with my partner being like, my writing's not going anywhere. I should just quit. This is too painful. And six days after that, I got the email saying it was a finalist. And so I was like, okay, the universe is telling me like, keep going. And I've been yeah. a finalist for this before. And like, I'm doing well. And then the day after my birthday, I get a call from the former poet laureate of California being like, hey, your book won. So <laughs> there was part of me that's like, this is amazing. This is my lifelong dream. And there was part of me that was like, oh shit, I was supposed to have like five years of slogging where I could really become comfortable with yeah. this book. And so it, yeah, there, there's not a feeling of safety. It's it's a sense, you, you know, you said the word freeing and it's freeing in the way that like jumping off a cliff in a wingsuit yes. would be free. That's what I mean. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 No, yeah. it's, we talk a lot about the trauma of success on this show too. Like nobody tells you what happens when you, you know, I was at Wired in 1998, 28, 6, 26, writing for millions of people. I was not fucking equipped for that. There was nothing in my background that prepared me for that level of feedback, for that level of publicness. And I walked away like I had to. I was good. It wasn't working for me. And it was because yeah. like, what the fuck do you do when you hit the target? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Tell me if you figure that out. Like so far. Well, I quit like... everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, do well, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I don't think I'm going to quit, but it has been a really interesting spiritual exercise. And even though, you know, it's a podcast and it's chill and we're just shooting shit and it's not like I'm, you're not grilling me like we're just having a friendly conversation. Yeah. Just this is like part of the spiritual journey. Like it started, I pre-recorded a conversation for the Miami Book Fair and then I did the Montana Book Festival. And I thought like, oh, just Montana, they're just gonna pair me with someone. And they're like, we're pairing you with Pulitzer Prize winner Forrest Gander. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> you know, and then there I'm it done. Goes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so I was like, okay, great. And then, uh, and then, uh, you know, I've done a couple recorded book launches and like, a, you know, the Skylight Books podcast and stuff like that. Oh, and cool. each time, it's a little bit more permission to be like, I can just be a human and I can show up and you know um but that has been the journey so far but yeah i mean for millions i guess the nice thing about poetry is even famous poets aren't that famous but yeah. but millions of readers especially in the social media age i'm not actually sure yeah well i fortunately was there in 90 i was just telling people the other day like i had several hundred thousand people that signed up to get my stories every day when they came out and i am so thankful that i don't have that list like yeah. it was, you know, like I like today I'd be OK with it because I've gone through therapy and I'm in therapy and I sort of have that sense of who I am and what I want. And I'm not this person that I was before. But fuck, like the trauma of success after you hit the mark is mm -hmm. the what comes next really starts messing with that voice that you find. Right. Like, yeah, you yeah. know, because you okay. have to not try to then like, well, I got to make the next thing bigger. You got to just be like, no, fuck it. The next thing's going to be more me. Yes. 
yeah. yeah, absolutely. I don't know what the alternative is because the thing is like all this stuff is so fleeting. Like I'm, I'm very yeah. grateful for this award. It's a big deal. It's something I wanted for 15 years and it's so fleeting. Like, yeah. you know, this book tour is going to be over and then it's just going to be me and my cat in my study again, like trying to write something on a piece of paper. So I better love the writing part on the piece of paper because people aren't going to come every day at my door and be like, here's an award. Feel yeah. good about yourself. You know? Or like everybody's not going to be like, oh, my God, your writing changed my life. Like, yeah, that's great. But like. That, yeah. That's external, that extrinsic stuff uh is really for writers it's why i designed the show this way like we don't do any of the marketing i don't ask how you did shit it's like ah fucking if people knew that anytime people finish a book novelists always tell me i've never had a novelist say i know how to write a novel they said i finished my first book and that then i knew i could finish a book mm -hmm. and then the next time i wrote a book it was different i may be a little better at it but problems come up the writing's not working characters aren't doing what they're supposed to like there's just never a point where any of us are like fuck it i've nailed this yeah <laughs> yeah yeah i think it's true and and or if there is then you know then you're doing something very formulaic and i mean there are some niches in the industry where that's okay you know where you have the romance novel and you have yeah. to meet the guy on page 30 and you know but yeah. for the most part for the kind of stuff that people are doing who come on your show it's like yeah it's gonna be a new adventure but even that time, even so. that formulaic stuff you have to do it well Oh, totally. Yeah. Because if yeah, I, you know, some, I was there's like, still a craft I, to that. Yeah. Yeah. I tell people I don't privilege any kind of writing on this show because anybody that yeah. can do it and finish the project, like, you know, both my uncles were, they were carpenters, man. I can't build shit. Right. So, like, <laughs> you if, you, both, if yeah. you do a book of poetry, like, that may not be my bailiwick, but I can't do that. Like, and yeah. I know what it takes to make that happen, which is mm -hmm. 15 years of being, you know, not miserable, but like, is this a thing? <laughs> That's, that's the question. Yeah. And I mean, I say that and one of the hats that I wear is a ghostwriter. Like I ghostwrite nonfiction titles um, for. That's know. a good gig. Yeah, it's it's super interesting. I get to, you know, everyone is different. But yeah, even in that, even even though there is more of a of a formula to it and it doesn't freak me out the way writing creatively does. Yeah. Still, it's like you got to draft a book. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? and, and like, yeah. And like you're a craftsperson. So like even if it's not the thing you want to do, I'm assuming you still want the thing to be good. You, like, you know what good is and you know what not good is and you know it when it's yeah. happening. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. The totally. misery of being a writer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so much of the time you don't know. Yeah. I feel like there's a lot of like the purgatory too. Like, yeah. like this is really good or this is really bad. And then there's just, this is like, should I still be yeah, should I just should stop I, this? Yeah, should I go like do the laundry? Is this... <laughs> yeah. I always tell folks like being a writer is two things. It's being a narcissist and saying, I have a thing to say that people should hear. <laughs> and then absolutely being self-loathing, which is I cannot do any of this. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then hopefully there's some sort of like humble but curious line that you tack between the two and every once in a while you make something meaningful yeah, that's and... why you have editors like mm, yeah this is a little bit too much of you like all right for this yeah yeah fair <laughs> enough good point yeah. yeah well get me out of here because i thought that was fascinating and they're like only your mother only your mother thinks yep. that's interesting and maybe even she doesn't get it so, yeah, yeah only because she has to yeah <laughs> and like there's some mothers that don't have to <laughs> so they may not even mm -hmm. like it. uh yeah. you are a goddamn delight I am so happy that you came on the show. Um, oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been just super easy. It's like we met before or something. It's just, <laughs> it's <laughs> which shows I, you're good at your craft of interviewing. So it's, I, you know, I told people like forever I wanted to be a writer and then I realized I'm actually better at an editor. 
Like that's what I do best. And I'm a better interviewer than I am an editor. And I'm like, that's really depressing for a writer to be like, ah, fuck. <laughs> that's the third yeah. best thing I do. <laughs> it's it's a it's an art form for real. I mean, it's possible somebody trying to interview and it just falls flat and there's no conversation at all. So I I'm very impressed. Thank you. Well, and it's you know I think you know that like most of my friends are writers. So like this is stuff that I do. And and I we talk about Venn diagrams on this program a lot. And there's something about being a writer that you come into a room and if everybody else is a writer, it doesn't matter who they are, what their background is there's like at least 30 to 40% that you begin with, right? That you don't, you feel like an outsider. You're always sort of trying to unpack things. You're trying to understand a question and that curiosity and that sort of not humbleness, but like that ability to be like, I don't know this. Somebody help me understand this. Mm -hmm. I think it makes it easy to talk to other writers because we're sort of used to like being uncomfortable but also being interested in the sort of process of how a thing gets put together. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. I think it helps. You've got the, you've got the extrovert energy. One thing I noticed is you get yeah. two introvert writers and they really want to be friends and they don't know how to start a conversation. <laughs> so yeah. it helps when you got somebody to be a connector. For yeah. Sure. I will say one thing that I've learned is sometimes being having the computer helps with that extrovert energy. Cause I am a super extrovert. And mm -hmm. I will go a thousand miles an hour and then pass out. And my girlfriend is sometimes <laughs> like, it's a little much today. Like, hey, <laughs> let's do that breath thing. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the book is out now. People can get it anywhere. Yeah. Yep. It's available every, uh, everywhere. And um, there are still some, I mean, I don't, I'm not sure when this will post, but there are still some virtual events and some in-person events happening through uh, mid-November and then there'll be some more stuff happening in the spring as well well we will be putting all that out on social media because um you really are delightful I appreciate you uh, you know indulging in sort of exploring all the kinds of stuff that go into this because I think that is the lens for how we the lens of our lives I think helps people understand what it is and why it is you're writing yeah, that's always sure. the thing I'm most interested with writers is like what's the lens and uh you have a really interesting one. Oh, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, and I hope we get to talk again soon in person. Uh, if everybody will take the vaccine, please. Yes, 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 please, 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 please. Everyone get that shot, wear that mask. Yeah. Yes. Well, you have a good day and we'll talk again you soon. Too. You too, take care. Well, there you have it. That was Teresa K. Miller. Her book, Borderline Fortune, is out right now. Um, she's great, fantastic. I love that conversation. I really, the last few months on this show, if you've been listening, I've really, we've gotten some great guests and we've really done some deep dives into some important stuff. And she was fantastic. Uh, I love writers that are game for that stuff because it is what fills my soul. Like I love reading and that is obviously a part of what I do. The writing, if you know, I've been struggling for a while to do that, but even just these interactions with people like her just, I get so filled with life when I'm done. So I hope that you enjoyed the program. Uh, before we get out of here, a couple of reminders. Think about a book lover too that you have in your life and tell them about this show. The easiest way for us to spread the word is for you to help us out. And since it doesn't cost anything to listen, maybe give back a little bit. It's the holiday season. Uh, and leave us a review. If you listen to Apple Podcasts, that would be great. If not, head over to the Facebook page at The Writer's Jam and leave us a review there. Don't forget to check out all the other programs on the Solid Listen Podcast Network, including our flagship, Mother May I Sleep With Podcast with our host and Solid Listen Podcast queen, Molly McLear. 
We have the video podcast coming out basically every Monday and Friday. You can also catch the audio of these on our main channel. The Jam, which is our hour-long program, is out every Wednesday. So make sure that you get subscribed wherever you listen to podcasts to the Downtown Riders Jam, and you won't miss any of this stuff. And remember, you can always catch us on Twitter and Instagram at the Riders Jam. Until the next time, we'll see you around the internet. And believe. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.